All right, episode 40, the big 4-0, with a guest we are super excited about. Today, we have Amy Dresner, ex-comedian, published author, former addict turned recovery advocate. What's up, Amy? Welcome to the podcast. Hi, hey, thanks for having me. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. Know? Every day sucks a little bit, right? Yeah, it's just kinda yeah. I mean I'm in West Hollywood and it's kind of one of the epicenters, so we're gonna open everything last and uh you know, I've got friends that are like in the O C and they're like, The mall's open, I'm the salons are open <laughs> you know, they just need to put up the sneeze guards for the nail salon and then I can go there and I'm like, Well great, I look like I look worse than when I was up for 17 days on crystal meth, okay? Like, I look like a fucking tweaker that just got out of a garbage can. Like, every, I've never looked so bad. It's bad. It's yeah, bad. we're about to give each other haircuts. So, I mean, it's gotten to that point. So, we, we don't look so good either. Don't worry. Yeah, it's like like long, just roots. And just, it's just in a, it's in a ratty samurai bun. And that's where it's staying until I can see my people. That's it, man. I have like a, I have like a lot of juve. I have a jufro that I like to straighten out. It's serious. <laughs> it's like, it needs professional help. I need to, I mean, I could go see my cat's groomer. He's open. So, <laughs> oh, you know. really? Like, I can give you a nice lion cut. I'm like, well, maybe, you know. Depends how long this goes for. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm rocking a solid Jufro as well, so you're in good company. <laughs> so, um, like, I, I've read a bunch of like interviews and watched some of your videos because um, you've really um, put out a lot of content and done a lot of podcasts, which is awesome. Um, I'm, a, I'm a podcast whore. Just say it. I'm a whore. <laughs> podcast whore. I'm a, I'm a recovering actual whore and i just became a podcast whore no people ask me on and so i say yes you know that's it well that's awesome especially for like ones like us like we're just you know we've done 40 but it still feels like it's just beginning and to have someone who's so experienced that um we were excited to just have someone we know is just going to be able to story tell amazingly for sure Thank you. Yeah. I know. Yuni was like, oh, oh, I got I got this woman, Amy. She's a comedian. She, I'm like, oh, wow, we got an actual comedian on our show. Oh, I haven't been a comedian. I mean, it never goes away. No. But it's like, yeah, I'm a recovering comedian as well as a recovering cokehead. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it never, I haven't done comedy since I got arrested. But that's a whole other story. But well, we'll get to that part. But, yeah. like, so... All, all the, like, interviews and stuff that I, I've read and, and seen, everyone kind of starts in, like, your your dark years. But I'd love to, like, hear a little bit of the backstory because I know you grew up in L.A., um, in your own words, as a, a, a rich kid. And so yeah. I'd love to hear kind of, like, the beginning. How, what was growing up like for you? What was your family like before kind of everything changed? Um. Well, my parents were uh, split up when I was two. They divorced when I was two. I'm an only child. My mother was a fashion designer, uh, ex-model, and my father was a screenwriter. And it sounds all really glamorous, except that there's, like, massive mental illness and addiction in my family. (laughs) And um, so I kind of was shuttled between the two of them for a good amount of years until my mother moved to Mexico when I was 13 to start a... um, 
a rug business. She started working with the Zapotec Indians to uh, and to weave her own designs. So that's kind of cool. Wow. Except she was gone for 10 years, and I was like, you know, went through puberty with my dad. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's, uh, I mean, it, it was, I mean, I was very, very well educated. You know, we had, I had, we had plenty of money. I mean, not like crazy rich or anything like that, but I didn't want for anything. I mean, I was a little bit spoiled looking back. And, um, but I was a, a real good girl. I was a really good girl. And I was a, a straight A student and I was like obsessed with purity and I didn't kiss anyone until I was 18. And, you know, I didn't have sex until I was 19. And, you know, I, I was really a good girl and uh, very much my father's sort of companion, sort of emotional companion and sort of a mini me to him. You know, he's he's a writer as well. And uh, he used to do a lot of com- writing, a lot of comedy. And um, but it was strange to be primarily raised by man because it's like I can play basketball and, you know, play poker and ride a bike and bowl but I can't cook and I don't know how to put on makeup and you know mm-hmm. and I'm straight so it's like oh you know guys are kind of like oh can you cook I'm like uh, dope I can cook dope is what I can do <laughs> so you know if that's what you're interested in you know <laughs> like but thanks to uh thanks to the arrest and the chain gang I can sweep really well now because I just sweep the streets for 240 hours on a chain gang, so I'm really good at that also. And I can do laundry, and, you know, I'm great at sex, so I was a sex addict, so that's good. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it, it's gnarly. It's been interesting. Where, where do you sure. feel, like, if you look back, can you pinpoint, like, a spot where you thought, where you think that was kind of, like, a turning point? Um, I remember just feeling, like outside of everything even from a very young age feeling weird and different and I was weird and different I mean like my mother would go to Paris and like I there was like a year when I was like nine or ten where I only wore bow ties and vests and then there was another year where I only wore like uh camouflage and people called me army dresner like I was weird you know what I mean I was definitely weird um but I just remember feeling sort of I don't know how to describe it, like outside looking in a lot. And uh, I started to started to get really depressed around 15. There was days where I was like, I'm too ugly to get out of bed. And I shouldn't be on the planet and that kind of shit, you know, mm-hmm. like really started to kind of, kind of unravel. And I, I don't think they, and I've been, it was in therapy since I was 13, but it was, uh, I mean, my father made this, you know, bet with me. He said, I bet you'll smoke or drink or do drugs before you're 18. And if you don't, I'll give you a thousand dollars. Make this terrible joke that that's how Jews raise each other. We just bribe <laughs> each other, you know. And it worked. You know, it worked. I was nineteen when I drank, and uh, in college, and it didn't look that different from everyone else's drinking. I mean, I blacked out at twenty, but everyone was throwing up and fucking each other, and it was it's college in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It didn't look that different. It was later, after a couple of nervous breakdowns, and when I got into the, like hard drugs, that things really started to spiral out of control. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we we listened to um, a podcast by someone I'm not I'm not sure if you listened to him, but uh, Gary V. And uh, oh God, I love. Yeah, I, first of all, he is like my idol. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yes, us too. I love him, and I love that he swears, and I just I love him. Yeah, he always preaches that like the richest people are some of the unhappiest people you ever meet because they often don't get credit for their accomplishment. Do you? Did you feel that? Did you have yes. this kind of? Uh, yes. 
what I found was that because everything was given to me, I had absolutely no self-esteem and I had no pride because I hadn't done anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was all given to me. And so it's a sort of empty, it's an empty type of wealth. And so, I, you know, when you don't have to do anything, then you become kind of crippled because you don't know how, and then you're afraid to, and it's this horrible cycle. And so, you know, once, so I, you know, I, I basically blew through my trust fund on you know, going to rehabs, basically, and um, psychiatrists in weird clinics in Tijuana, you know, that were like, we're going to, you know, we, we attach this thing and we put amino acids in your vein and then you're no longer a drug addict. And I was like, awesome. You know what I mean? And of course, you know, there's people there that have like MS and like cancer. And they're like, what are you here for? And I'm like, I can't just stop shooting cocaine. They're like, okay. You know, so I felt like a real asshole at that clinic. But um, I, um, I just didn't know how to take care of myself. And when you're broken and you're a drug addict and you're crazy, uh, people keep taking care of you. And I caught on to that really quick. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, if I stay broken and crazy, people could take care of me. And that's what happened until they stopped and they were just over it. Fin- they were financially and emotionally drained. And then I married a rich guy and I was like, well, he'll take care of me. He's like a, you know, he was a psychiatric social worker and, you know, owned, owned rehabs. And I was like, perfect, you know, and uh, that's not the reason to marry someone. And then of course that blew up in my face because I had to learn how to take care of myself. That was the always the universe was like, no, you need to learn to take care of yourself, honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you meet your destiny on the road, you go to avoid it. So I was like, I don't want to take care of myself. And then I ended up losing everything and being left penniless in a psych ward. Yeah, what was yeah. that experience like? Because I, I, I read that you mentioned that, um, but I haven't seen anything like where you go kind of go deeper into it. What was that experience like, if you don't mind sharing? Well, it's in, it's in the book, if you'd read the book. Um, okay. Before you actually had me on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've been in the psych ward four times. Uh, don't get too excited. I know it's real. I put that on my, I always make sure to put that on a dating profile. Uh, it's. <laughs> Um, I've been fifty-one fifty, which is when you're you're put in a psych ward against your will because you're a harm to yourself or others. It's it's weird to me that they put depressed people in um, a, the psych ward because it is the most depressing place on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's you know, I, I, it's it's gray walls and no windows and people who think they're Thomas Jefferson and terrible food and a lot of puzzles and it's really awful. And so, like, you don't get better there. You just, they just sort of lock you up for a couple of days until they're sure you're not going to do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but did, that was definitely a low point, for sure. Did you feel like um, coming in as someone who had, like, you mentioned um, in an interview that I read that, you know, you always had daddy's money to fall back on. Did you feel like you were judged for that, even amongst other addicts that, you know, you didn't... Maybe no, because I mean, you know, later when I went to treatment, I, uh, I mean, God, I mean, there were kids way richer than me, you know, who, and those are the kids that die because there's no bottom. Mm-hmm. They just have, they, you know, their parents just keep hiring big lawyers. They have endless amounts of money to, you know, buy drugs. They have endless amounts of money to get sober companions to just circle through. And those are the kids I've seen that really die. When I finally, I mean, I had times that I got sober for like a couple of years and then I'd relapse in a couple of years. Then I relapsed. And what really shifted for me was when I had lost everything, when it was me on medical disability, you know, Jewish American princess on medical disability 
sweeping the streets for a criminal conviction, going, you know, going through a horrible divorce, living in a sober living for two and a half years, sharing a room with a girl. And I was like, here you are, bitch, 42 years old. Welcome. You know, Mm -hmm. so much for your magna cum laude shit now, you know, and it was it was then that I was like, oh, no one's going to save you, honey. It's you. You Mm -hmm. need to make your own way. You need to fix it. And uh, I really kind of woke up and had a big shift. And when I was sweeping the streets, I was feeling really sorry for myself. It was like me and like 40 Mexican guys, you know, and I, you know, done this joke, you know, but it was, it was, I mean, I showed up and I was like, really like, oh my God, these people are criminals. Like, what am I doing here? And they were like, you know, it's like 40 Mexican guys in black hoodies. And I was like, fuck. And they're like, what you here for weta, huh? I'm here for a DUI. What you here for? And I was like, oh, I'm here for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon. They're like, oh, shit, you know? (laughs) So it became really clear to me I was the criminal. I was there for one of the very few people there for something violent. And I had more time assigned to me by the court than anybody else. So I was like, oh, honey, you're the criminal. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's and everything flipped. And so remember one day I'm sweeping and I was just like, God, fuck, this sucks. And like, I, it's not where I saw my life going. And my lawyer sucked. And my ex shouldn't have called the cops. And he's a pussy. And poor me. And, and I went. And then I had this epiphany. And I just went, wait a second. Like, this could be the best thing that ever happened to me. Or it could be the worst thing that ever happened to me. And it's my decision. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm at this crossroads. And I could be you know, bitter about it, or I could really say, hey, maybe this is like a lesson dressed up as a horrible, you know, in this horrible outfit. Like this is, this could be the best thing if there's the, there is, it didn't happen by accident. It was all of my actions that led me to this consequence. And it was like, well, maybe I need to learn things. Maybe this is exactly where I need to be. And so I was like, okay, I can learn a work ethic. I can learn humility. I can finish what I start. I just, I, I, I shifted my framework around it and I really embraced it. And it changed my experience of what community labor was for me. Everyone else was really pissed off about it. And I really saw this as my transformation and that's exactly what it became i mean i was almost happy there's one scene in the book where i'm like sweeping and i'm like singing people are like how high is that motherfucker like what's going on like you know i mean we're sweeping like human poo like people it was bad i mean no one talked to us like nobody talked to us we were criminals we had shirts on and people would not say good morning except for like drunk homeless people they're like morning i know it you know i know it sucks but it beats the pen you know (laughs) they know what we're here for and then there was like some dumb shits who thought we were doing like environmental work you know they're like i love the environmentalism you're doing oh my god like how do i become part of this and clean up the environment that's so wonderful I was like, um, you just pull a knife on your ex-husband and like, you too can sweep leaves and poo. So. And where did you go from there? Like, so that was the mental shift. And then kind of how, how did the rest come about? I had started writing, uh, for an addiction recovery magazine called The Fix, uh, in 2012. And so I think I got, I got arrested. Yeah, I got arrested in 2011. So I was writing my way through this entire thing. And I was also posting on Facebook every day like another day on the chain gang and i would talk about whatever i had learned or whatever i'd seen 
not like blowing anyone's anonymity or anything. People were really weird about that. Everyone's like, I'll be your Facebook friend, but like people think I'm on a work trip. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. I was like, and I was like, Hey guys, like I'm sweeping trash today and this is where what's happening. And this is what I learned and saw blah, blah. People thought it was really funny and they admired me for being shameless about it. And, when I finished my, when I finished all 240 hours, finally, they were like, get arrested again. Those were the best Facebook posts <laughs> ever. Like, holy, and I was like, oh yeah. And that's when my editor at the time was like, there's your book, dummy. Like, there's the framework of your book. Yeah. And I was like, oh. So that became the framework for my memoir. And, you know, I mean, I had 20 years. It's hard to make addiction interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. editors really like narrative arc. They want a narrative arc, you know, and it's hard when addiction is sort of like, you know, I fucked up and I don't want to do that again. And now I'm clean and I fucked up and I don't want to do that again. And now I'm clean. It's Groundhog's Day. It's Mm -hmm. just very, very repetitive and redundant and extraordinarily depressing. And it was rare for there to be a memoir that was funny um because i think that if you don't laugh at things you just can't get through it you've got to see the humor otherwise you're just dead in the water you have to see the humor and um that was also framed this way and also it was rare for a woman to write a an addiction memoir where she was the perpetrator of domestic violence where she was an iv drug addict where she was mentally ill and a sex addict you know, and I haven't had a date since the book came out. <laughs> but I have saved souls. I have saved so many souls. So who cares if I ever get laid again? I've I brought many people into the fold of recovery. No, I, um, yeah, I, uh, so I really laid it all out there. And I just thought, I'm not alone in this. I know other people have experienced this. And behind all of those behaviors is the feelings. Mm-hmm. There's feelings of loneliness and depression and self-loathing and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I just, you know, for me, I wanted people to know it's not, it's not the other. I was the last person that all of this kind of should have happened to in people's eyes. And addiction doesn't discriminate. Mm-hmm. And, not, you know, and I never thought I'd be arrested or put in a psych ward. That was all stuff, you know what I mean, that, that happened to other people. That didn't happen to me. Yeah. And, and when, yeah, so. And when your memoir came out, was the feedback that you got, do you feel it was stronger from other addicts, from people who maybe hadn't admitted to themselves they were addicted or people who hadn't experienced any of it? Um, well, I don't read reviews. Cause my father told me don't ever read the reviews because you'll, you know, if they're good, you're going to think you should win a Pulitzer Prize. And if they're bad, you should, you know, you're going to want to throw yourself out a fucking window. So, um, the people that reached out to me were mostly addicts and they were like, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for giving me hope. Thank you for keeping it real. Thank you for telling the truth. Thank you for making me feel less broken and less alone and get, like making me laugh at stuff that I felt ashamed about. And mm-hmm. I was like, fucking mission accomplished. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and there was also the family and friends of addicts who were like, oh my God, I get it now. Like I didn't understand my uncle or my dad or my brother and I was angry. And now reading your book, I understand what it's like in the mind and body of an addict. And thank you. I didn't understand how much pain they were in. I didn't understand the lack of coping mechanisms. I didn't understand, you know, the fear that was happening. But thank you for helping me have compassion. 
And then from there, now we're in the situation of what the world is now, which is oh. usually where we start these kind of yeah. discussions. But now <laughs> that we have more context, what's it been like for you these last three, three-ish months? Kind of what, what was your journey from the beginning uh, of these three months to up to now? Um, it's been really frightening. You know, um, I am on what they call the Corona coaster. I don't know if you called that. So it's like, I'll be okay for a couple of days. And then I just like cry. Like the fourth day I cry and then like three days I'm okay. And then the fourth day I cry. Um, I've been sleeping a lot. I have stayed sober. I started vaping again, which I'm not happy about. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people have relapsed. It's the perfect storm for relapse Mm -hmm. with financial insecurity, the isolation. I mean, we isolate by nature and human connection is so key for us. I mean, Zoom meetings are great, but like that is not the same as being in person and hugging someone and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so isolation and the financial insecurity and all of that, I've seen a lot of people relapse. And then the people who are staying in recovery are like eating their way through yeah. COVID. You know what I mean? <laughs> eating, we're like eating and smoking our way through COVID. That's pretty much what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is an unprecedented time and you've got to kind of give yourself a break. You know, it's uh, what I've learned. I just wrote a piece that'll be, that'll go up soon. And when you're physically isolated from other people's, your dopamine gets drops. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if you're a, if you're a drug addict or someone in recovery and you already have low dopamine to begin with, well, if you're isolated, your dopamine drops even further. Your brain is like, we need dopamine. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we're going to like, okay, so I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get high. So where else can I get dopamine? You know, candy, sex, you know, cigarettes, shopping, whatever, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, sex, I'm not even doing that. I mean, I, I, I'd like to find someone who could cut my hair through a glory <laughs> hole in a fucking hazmat suit. Fuck sex. <laughs> like, like sex is like totally off the radar like if this had happened during my sex addiction that would have been the end of it you know if one sex and love addicts meetings or any of them are hitting a bottom but this would have just um it's been really hard it's been um really difficult and so is that where you get your dopamine now through like the stuff you mentioned, like candy and shopping or like, how, how? no, I don't have money to shop. There's okay. no money. I don't have any money, you know, um, you know, I, I, a lot of people have reached out. Um, I'm doing a lot of like service stuff to the recovery community. Um, I don't know where I'm getting my dopamine. I mean, I'm probably not getting enough. I'm trying to exercise. I'm really struggling with the nicotine thing on and off and on and off. When I'm upset, I don't really eat. I kind of shut down. Mm -hmm. So when I get stressed out, I just kind of shut down and I take to my bed. And everyone's like, that's why you look, you know, 20 years younger. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm, uh, you know, it's like I'm asleep all the time. That's why I'm like asleep all the time. But I also have epilepsy from crystal meth. So I'm on some pretty heavy duty, um, epilepsy meds and they make you tired but that's my that's anyway and i'm lazy i'm also lazy and i like to nap i like to nap fine fuck it i like to nap i like napping it is a way to just tap out like you just go hey you know what i can't fucking deal i'm turning i'm unplugging bye well the stuff some of the stuff that i read i really love kind of how you're approaching uh some of what other people are doing i have to read this excerpt from something you wrote recently because it's legitimately my favorite thing that i've read about this pandemic so if you don't mind i'm just going to read a little piece no, here 
So um, I hear program peeps being all like, I choose to have faith and be positive. I'm not worried about it, speaking about Corona, obviously, while they do things that the CDC has warned us not to do. Um, okay, magical thinker, I'm all for being positive, but let's wash our hands and not hang out in big groups. As the Russian pro- sailor proverb goes, pray to God, but row to shore, yeah. which I just thought is like the most amazing proverb. And just like <laughs> if it became part of our lives, pandemic or not, we'd be in such a better place. Well, yeah, that's, I think, a problem with, you know, hardcore AA fundamentalists and religious people. It was like even that pastor's like, God's going to protect me. I need to mm-hmm. tend to mm-hmm. my flock. And then like fucking he's dead from COVID. Like that worked out well for you, buddy. Yeah. But um, what I see is a lot of in the program, a lot of God's going to take this away. God's going to take away my addiction. God's going to take away my character defects, blah, blah. And for me, that's like, again, as an addict, I want someone to do it to, for me. I want a pill to fix it. I want so I don't want, you know what I mean? I, I don't want to do the work. And what I have learned in recovery is you, no one fixes it for you. Not God, not your sponsor, you know, no, you do it. Mm-hmm. It's by taking contrary action over and over and over again, that you're creating a new neural pathway in your brain that becomes your default mechanism. And you're basically rewiring your brain through action, period. That's it. Yeah, I was going to say, I totally, I can't relate to that more. It's the, the same uh, when I was a teenager, I too suffered from severe depression and I was uber religious. And that's actually how I became an atheist was because one day I just stopped praying and said, I have to get out of this on my own. Like no one's going to save me. Right, right. Yeah, it's a very like, it's a sort of, I think it's a weird, I think it's a weird victim mentality, but I also feel that it's, I understand you know, think you want to think things that ha- things happen for a reason, and like God's got your back, or the universe has your back, and it's like it definitely brings your anxiety down. If you're like, hey, you know, universe isn't going to drop me on my ass, and blah blah, and I have a certain amount of that, but I also think that there's a righteousness in the fact that like, well, you know, God took away my alcoholism, and it's like, well, other people are like dying, but what about that guy? Mm-hmm. He didn't care about. He didn't care about that guy. Yeah. That guy died, but he, he took away your... Oh, okay. I mean, that's just a weird sort of righteous thing that I think is yucky, and I don't like that. So, um, and with depression, yeah. I mean, I have to force myself to go to Zoom meetings, to write, to get up and take a walk, and, you know, and sometimes I'm, I'm better at it than others. Sometimes I'm like, oh, no. Is, is, do it today, you know? Not is, happening today. Is that just a muscle, you think, that you work, or is there something that kind of change that for you that you you were able to do it more often than not um i don't know i mean i think for me as what i found for me as as a recovering addict that i am either doing something every day or i'm not doing it at all i I still really struggle with moderation at seven years you know either Mm -hmm. i'm working out every day or i'm not working out either i'm meditating every day or i'm not meditating that's it you know i you know there's no middle ground you know, I just, I can't seem to, I mean, I make this joke, we're either like smoking meth or we're doing CrossFit and vegan. We're just not good <laughs> at the middle ground. We're just not, you know? And it's like, we're extremists. Even when we're extremists in sobriety and in purist stuff, I think that even people who get sober and then like, are like, I've got to get like uber sober and, you know, not even be on psych meds and not eat gluten. It's like, calm down. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it took me years and years and years 
and seven rehabs to go to figure out that I couldn't listen to my feelings, that my feelings would always tell me go get high and fuck this and poor me and you know, whatever. And that I basically had to just take the action. I had to take action no matter how I felt and that the action changes your feelings. And that is actually neuroscience. It's bi-directionality. You can change your feelings and your thoughts through behavior. And that's really hard when you have big feelings because it feels like your big feelings are your, it's the truth. Mm -hmm. That's it. And I can't do it, you know? And, and it's like, it's not that you can't do it. It's that you are not willing to do it. Yeah. That's such a huge point. And we actually like our son's only six and and still uh, I've been talking to him about it for years already that like your brain sometimes will tell you things that are not the right thing. Absolutely. And like, it's, uh, especially if you have mental illness or addiction, you know, and that's the whole thing. It's like, so yeah yeah you're just gonna have to go you know i you, i run it by someone hey my brain's telling me this you know everyone's like that is a terrible idea <laughs> like, oh okay you know it's like, and usually or i know i'll you know i have impulse control problems still it's getting it gets better but i'm like just wait just wait 20 minutes amy and still if you think it's a good idea you can do it mm-hmm. yeah you can send that text you can send that email you can blah 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 you know just let's wait 20 minutes yeah, that's so huge. Right? Just that pause, and it can be really hard. And it's like when you, and that was what I tell people who are trying to get sober. It's like when you have the urge to drink or use, just buy yourself 20 minutes. Like, watch Trial by Media, you know, watch mm-hmm. Tiger King, take a bath, take a walk, jack off. Like, I don't care. Buy 20 minutes. And because the urge, to use will pass whether you use or not but if you use and if you're an addict it opens up that that horrible vortex inside and then you're like on this bender you just totally fucked up your biochemistry and the craving is on and it's gnarly you know yeah it took me a very long time to figure that out like it's okay to be uncomfortable that's okay that's Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it builds that muscle too right that like just even just taking that 20 minutes is like okay i don't have to react immediately like i'm starting to build some space in my brain exactly and just i mean how many times have you like god oh i just don't feel like doing that and then you do and you're like oh my god i feel so much better like i want to do that every day and then the next day comes you're like i I can't i don't want to do that again today you're like yesterday i felt great after don't you remember like you don't we don't remember yeah no yeah 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 i mean i have a virtual trainer and he's like i'm like i don't feel it he's like shut up i'll see you on zoom and i'm like oh okay thank you it's like god stop whining Yeah, it's strange how our brains does that, right? We're just, like, wired to just, like, take the easiest path of least resistance, no matter what it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know where exactly that comes from, but, um, I've, I've, you know, I try not to listen to that. And I try, you know, the thing with, with being a writer is you have to you know, a freelance writer now. So the books come out, we're writing up the, we're polishing the pilot and we're gonna, you know, that's being developed for a TV series, which is super exciting. And, um, but I'm a freelance writer and that's, and, and, and I'm a speaker and, um, you have to do, you know, you've got to write the piece and send it in and pitch ideas to get paid. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with speaking, I mean, that's something that, is well now i don't know where that whole world is gone because now no you can't fly anywhere you can't be around anyone that whole speaking i mean my agent was gary v's agent i was like perfect oh, I was wow. like, no. you know i was like 
yeah, but like that whole the speaking thing is dead now. Yeah. And no one knows. Like, what do you pay someone to speak on a virtual thing when you're, you know, because I'm in my sweatpants in my bed. No one knows that. But, you know, it's still, <laughs> but it's still my time and it's still energy. But um, do you see that growing at all, though? Like, is it is it becoming more of a thing now to do a lot more virtual talks? Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yes. I definitely see that coming. I've been invited to a bunch of things and um, yeah, I've got a, a bunch of things coming. And, and I, I don't know, there were things that were scheduled for September and whether, you know, things will be cleaned up enough by then to even travel. I have no idea, you know, but there's other ones that are virtual that are that, that have already been booked. And I'm like, yeah, but it's just it's not the same. I mean, you feed off the, the energy of the crowd and seeing people's faces. And it's not the same where it's speaking into a, you know, a computer by mm-hmm. yourself. It's just not the same when you can get dressed up and you can, you know, be in front of a microphone. And even though it can be terrifying, and I've always had a horrible stage fright, even when I was a comic, you know, there's an energy and there's a connection that happens in person. You know, reading the room and just being connected in the end. That's that's lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You said um, even before COVID, you were a pretty big catastrophizer that you thought like every headache was a brain tumor. Every cramp was pancreatitis. Yeah, that's, that's come since I got sober. Like when I was, you know, I would shoot coke and have a seizure and be like, no big deal. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> You know, I was like, that, okay, obviously that's some strong coke. Let's just put a little more water in, no problem. You know, and then I would shoot coke and have like another seizure. And instead of going, hey, you shot, you know, you shouldn't shoot cocaine while you have epilepsy, Amy, um, or shouldn't shoot cocaine at all. I was like, oh my god, like shooting cocaine is like a high impact sport, and I need to wear protective gear. And I shot coke in a bike helmet, and that is completely true. Wow. I was like, I, like, I don't want to crack my head open, but I want to get high, right? So I was never sick when I was using, never. I, now that I've been sober, everything, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I'm notorious for being sick. Everyone's like, you're always sick. You have the shittiest immune system. I'm like, thank you. Like, what do you want me to do about it? So I'm always sick. Every single headache is a brain tumor. Yeah, everything's cancer. Yeah, always. Everything's a stroke. Wherein before, when I could really be giving myself strokes i didn't even think about it i mean i was a little i was younger but i seriously it was not even in my mind yeah well michelle here will attest that uh, that is exactly me that like (laughs) i I, especially now with covid like i sneeze one time even though we haven't left the house in a month and it's like it's over it's over oh yeah 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 yeah. how do you deal with that anxiety now yeah, like I dry caught, like like I had a chip caught in my throat, and I was like, it's a dry cough. <laughs> I have a fever, and I like go over to my roommate, and he's stuck here, and he usually lives in New York, and he's just like, oh my god, you don't have it, you know, like stop. It's allergies, relax. Yeah, he's just like, oh my god, you don't. I'm like, we need to get a thermometer. Um, um, but how do you deal with that anxiety now, like knowing that that's part of your process? How, how do you kind of talk yourself off the ledge? Well, I've been really we've been really really careful we're not seeing anyone we wipe down all our groceries we wear masks we wear gloves and you're talking to someone who you know boned strangers without protection and now i'm like you know have rubber gloves and a mask on go to the park. <laughs> like i'm like okay like i see a change here um, um but uh um i just I know that that's how my brain works. I know I'm panicky. I woke up this morning with anxiety. I'm having really vivid nightmares. I'm mm-hmm. talking in my sleep. 
I think a lot of people are experiencing that. I'm having the Corona stupids, I think they call it, like where you just can't even, like you're foggy and you can't even think of words, which mm-hmm. is terrific when you're like doing interviews. You're mm-hmm. like, what is it called? <laughs> with the legs and the Dog. Tail. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, that's it. You know, like, oh my God, this is terrible. You know, and my mom has dementia. So it's like, now I'm like, that's it. I have dementia. It's oh, coming no. for me. You know, my dad has cancer and he's going through chemo. I mean, I have a lot to be stressed about. It's like, but um, I just... I try, you know, whatever's going to happen, I'm going to be okay. And if I, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of, you know, living and, and being unhappy. Or mm. I'm afraid of being like, like me. Like, I wasn't afraid of ever dying. I was afraid of like. Uh, you know. Oh, sorry. You cut out there for a second. You were Sorry. I said, I'm not afraid of, um. I'm not afraid of uh, dying. I was never afraid of dying when I was using. I was afraid of that I'd be like, that I would fuck myself up and like be brain dead or be in a wheelchair or something right. like that. Do you have advice for, for um, kind of newly recovered addicts who uh, their anxiety might even be higher and kind of don't have the systems in place that you do um, living through this right now? Yeah. I mean, usually about active addicts or at people in recovery. I would say people in recovery, like new to recovery. Yeah, this is, I know a lot of people are new to recovery right now, and but God bless them. What a brave time to get sober. Like, Jesus. Uh, you know, the whole world, I mean, alcohol sales I saw in Nightline were up 479% just in like March alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's just like watching porn, eating, like smoking pot, and drinking themselves. Like, the quarantinis are going to morph into like a whole new wave of alcoholism that we're going to see. Mm-hmm. But like, um everyone's like it's you know it's morning drinking i'm like that's called alcohol <laughs> like i don't know what to tell you like <laughs> that was the you know, that was right before i went into rehab for the second time out of seven times but um um i think there's a, an enormous amount of um support on online there's a, a zillion groups there's a zillion facebook there's a zillion uh on, on sobriety support meetings you know and that to me is really helpful connecting with other people in recovery you know is helpful knowing that you're not alone that you're everyone is terrified right now you know mm-hmm. that this is going to pass and that if you are acting out in other ways that's okay as long as you don't pick up it's like this is unprecedented territory it's terrifying it's yeah. really scary and so i just think that you know trying to get outside trying to and just being connected like I um am part of Laura McCowan's the luckiest club and I I lead a meeting on Friday nights and um it's like 500 people it's crazy oh, wow. Wow. we do topics and I have speakers and it's not AA it's just sobriety sport like all modalities are welcome and I think that that's really the way things are moving and the way things are moving for me which is you know getting everything under the same tent of recovery like who cares if you do refuge recovery or yoga with a goat or you know what I mean? I lost like who gives a fuck? Like, you know, like however you get there. Awesome. I know there's no room for fundamentalism or infighting right now. Too many people are dying. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm really about like whatever works for you. That's great. And how would your advice be different to people who haven't gotten over that, that step, who are still using and are just kind of maybe waking up every day being like, this has to be it, but it never it hasn't been so far? God, I mean, that's the weird thing about, about recovery is like, you know, we don't really know 
what what makes it click for certain people. Certain people roll into like AA on a court card for DUI and have absolutely no intention of getting sober and stay sober for the rest of their lives. And then there's other people like me who get thrown into rehab after rehab and keep relapsing. So we don't know what that click is. It's different for everyone because mm-hmm. some people have trauma and some people have mental illness and some people there's a huge spectrum of addiction you know what i mean Mm -hmm. some people have to lose everything before they get it and other people have a little wake-up call and they're like i got it Mm -hmm. like not for me i gotta stop you know i guess you know people say well you know you've got to be ready do you i mean i don't know i mean i guess i mean i have a friend who's relapsing now and he just keeps saying i just want to do it one more time and i said that's how we all feel honey Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if I could you know, be high every day, all day, and not have it completely fuck up my life and my brain, I would do that. Like, anyone who's like goes into recovery and is like, I hate drugs and alcohol. It's like, that's bullshit. <laughs> you know? Um, but I think that um, uh, it's a, it's, in one way, this is the best time to get sober because you're not missing anything. You're not missing any clubs. You're not missing any parties. We're all in fucking rehab. Mm-hmm. We're all in lockdown. Mm-hmm. We're all in the psych ward. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're not missing anything. There's nothing to do. Yeah. At, it... the, at the same time, the the lack of human connection, the la- the the isolation is terrible for us. Yeah, and it seems almost like the opposite is true, too, or it's like the easiest time you've ever had to be an addict because nobody's expecting anything, and you are supposed to isolate and, and be alone all day. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah, right? I mean, everyone when, when the whole world is consuming more pot and booze and everything than they ever have before and drinking during the day, and then, you know, like, who's going to call you out on it? Yeah. Who's going to even see you if you're in your house? Like, I, we're great at isolating. That's like our, I mean, I could teach a class in isolation. Like, fuck, I did that for 20 years. Like, we know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And now we're taught, we're being told to do that. And it's really hard because that's our natural state is to, is to withdraw and isolate. And it's really bad. It's the worst thing for us. So it's a very difficult, I think it's, I think people who get sober right now are incredibly brave. And I know some people, uh, and I don't. You know, I don't know if I if it was me, would I just drink through this and then like get sober after? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. You know, I think it's different for everybody. Some people have still still have jobs, other people don't. People have children. I mean. Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, are you at a point in your recovery where that's not even an option, or are there days where you're like, man, it would be so easy to just have a couple of drinks or whatever it is? No, it's not even an option. I mean, I did that experiment so many times with every single type of drug there is, and right. I mean, even drugs I hated. I was like, well, I want to, I, I won't do this every day because I don't even like it. <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, I just like to feel different. Got it. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. I just like. I'm like, I, I'm high on this and I hate it every day. Okay. You know, so, um, no, I'm very clear that I, I cannot do it at all. It's not even something that I consider. Yeah. And that seems like something like maybe you have to, I guess it's different for everyone, but maybe you have to practice to, to know that, you know, to get to I, that. Yeah, point. I did. I did. I mean, I really needed to have that experience with everything. I think a lot of people are like, I'm just a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. And then they have to see that they can't drink mm-hmm. because there are people, I know heroin addicts who can drink. I know people who can't drink, but they can do blow. 
I know, I mean, everyone's a little bit different. So the idea of abstinence for everybody, I'm not sure that that's, not everyone wants abstinence and not everyone needs to be abstinent, but that's sort of the golden grail in, in rehabs and in AA. Hmm. I mean, I have to be abstinent. I know me. I've done the experiment for myself personally. So that's for me, I have to be. But other people, like if you're shooting heroin and now you're smoking pot, that's progress. Okay. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if less, less it's really impeding on your life. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, how much is it fucking up your life? Mm-hmm. And you do think that's possible that you could just kind of, you know, reduce your harm? I've seen people do it. I can't do that. Right. Yeah. You know, the people that I know, you know, um, are all the way, you know, they're all the way to those. They're all the way addicts to everything, to love, to sex, to candy, to nicotine, to, I mean, those are the people that I sort of hang with. They're hardcore and they, that's not an option for them. And most of the people that I, you know, being in a 12 step program, you know, abstinence is what is, is expected. But, um, but you know, I'm, I know harm reductionists and um, I think that we need to sort of open up our minds to the fact that like we need to keep people all alive mm-hmm. until they're ready to maybe get sober or put it down. I don't think it's, you know, I, I think harm reduction would have just kept me going or I would have just, I mean, I don't know that that would have ever worked for someone like me, right. but mm-hmm. I don't pretend to be the, you know, I'm not a clinical social worker. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a KDAC. I don't, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I really don't know. I think it's really a personal thing. I know people who used to shoot dope and were sober for eight years and now can smoke pot and drink and do coke sometimes and they're fine. And that's, I think they're the anomaly, but hey, whatever. It's not mine to judge. Right on. Do your thing. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess as long as you you are self-aware enough to know when you're fooling yourself a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? I think that that's probably what I know about addiction in terms of do- of low dopamine tone and that kind of stuff is that that's, you know, we'll, we'll, we just will find a substitute. And that's what I see happening for people in recovery during COVID specifically with the stress that they're under is that they're acting out more. You know, some people, of course, are like, I'm going to be on the Peloton, you know, 140 hours a day and write that novel. And, you know, I'm going to come out with a six-pack of abs. It's over for you, bitches. You know, you're like, okay. Like, it's not a competition for, like, a productivity contest. But, you know, what I see is most people really trying to just handle the stress and the fear and the financial insecurity and get through. Mm -hmm. And I think a little bit of numbing. Yeah, exactly. And I see a lot of people struggling with depression and there's been some suicides and it's, you know, there is a crisis within this crisis. You know, this is, this is a tough time for normal people, let alone people who have mental health or addiction issues. Right. We're, we're, We're much more fragile. We don't deal with stress well. You know what I mean? All of that kind of stuff. We don't deal with isolation well, all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good segue because I, I read something of yours that really helped me. And I feel like usually we ask people what their advice is for, for this COVID situation or what positives they've taken. But you've written it out. And it really like when I read it, um, I was just it really hit home for me. And so if you don't mind, I just want to read a little part from your uh, recent article on thefix.com. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it says, if you need help, financial, emotional, some dried noodles, whatever, ask for it. Stay on your meds, do virtual meetings, call people, stay connected, be empathetic. Getting loaded will not help anything. There's no current escape from this, which I thought was really powerful. Do self-care, whatever that looks like. Don't bang a lot of people. Cut yourself some slack. This is new and terrifying for all of us. Most importantly, be kind. This can either tear us apart or bring us together. Yeah, I really think that, I mean, this is the time where we need to role model kindness. Like, just even, there's so, I mean, we're so disconnected from each other. Even when you walk and there's someone else with a mask and now you've got to cross the street just to even say hi mm-hmm. or wave or, you know what I mean? All of that kind of stuff. Being kind to the people at the grocery store. Like, someone helped me at the supplement section. He was so lovely and I was so stupid and obnoxious and silly and it was like a whole it was like a feminine thing and it was a straight guy helping me with like a supplement and he was like i mean i'll just tell the story fine he was like <laughs> we were at sprouts we were at sprouts and i was with my my roommate who's gay who's very sort of like he's not like me at all okay so he's embarrassed by me and sort of just like what is wrong with you like i'm he's, he's younger than me and he just thinks i'm like really immature and weird and so uh this guy said you know you're in the supplement section hey do you do you need help with something and i said i need help with my pussy and uh, my, room, my roommate immediately walked away he was like oh my god and he was like talk to me like what's going on and i was like i don't know bro like it's not right it's like an aquarium down there. Like something's not right. And he was like, well, some people are into that girl. <laughs> and I was like, and I was really, and he was so funny. And we got a probiotic and I was like, this is so embarrassing. He's like, don't be embarrassed. Like I used to buy tampons for my three sisters. Like you're good. And he was so cool about it. And, um, I wrote to Sprouts and I just said, Hey, I want to let you know that this person helped me and they were amazing. And they were laughed at my terrible jokes and it was a really embarrassing situation. He handled it with grace and he gave me a lot of time. And they gave him, like, they rewarded him. Oh. He, was an, he was like a new worker for them. And then when I was in there the other day, I was like, hey. And he goes, thank you so much for that. That was so cool. And I just thought, think about how easy it is to call and complain. How often do you call and say someone was awesome? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and M- Michelle does that here, and I'm always like, I always like, you know, you're such a better person than I am because I would only complain. I would never like think to like, wow, like send an email saying this person was amazing. Yeah, they like four people from Sprouts they like, called and emailed me. I cried every time. They were like, thank you so much for telling us that he was such a great. And I was like, I like bawled every single time. And it was like, so I just think that like, even someone held the door with their elbow for me. And I was like, thank you. And I just, you know, just being kind to, you know, just being kind to people right now. Everyone is scared. Mm -hmm. Everyone feels isolated. Everyone feels alone. And it's so easy to pit other people as the enemy. You know, it's like, I don't know. I just, uh, I really have asked, had to ask for help during this period, you know, not just, you know, like I had to apply for food stamps. I was like, okay, like this is going to be, you know, like there's the prince, you know, Jewish American princess. Like I have EBT. Will you take that? I'm like, that's going to be a humbling moment. That's going to be back to like me on the chain gang and on medical disability. And it's like, 
you know, having to apply for un- like gig unemployment and asking friends, you know, can you pick this this up for me? I just asked the credit card company, could they chill on the on the charges? And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm also hustling my ass on writing pieces, but it's like, you know, asking for help. I have a I have a a guy that he think he says I helped get him sober through my book and podcast and my and my I don't know my old stand up and he's a doomsday prepper so he's like thrilled for this day he's like everyone thought I was crazy they don't think I'm fucking crazy now do they motherfuckers with my 17 bottles of bleach and my masks and my dried noodles and my you know what I mean my hand sanitizer and he's brought me he sent me three packages and he dropped me off a bunch of stuff today and he's like you saved my life you got me off meth sometimes I drink or smoke pop, but you got me off the hard stuff and I will ever forever be grateful. So wow. it is no problem to send you hand sanitizer or send you some, some masks or some gloves or some, you know. Wow. Yeah. Like, like Gary V says, karma is practical. Absolutely. I re- truly believe that. And I really, that's weird. And, you know, very, people don't like to help each other, especially they didn't do it in the comedy world. They don't like to do it in the writing world. Like I'm always someone who's like, uh, you know, introduces people to my agent and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and there gets also to a point where you have to set a boundary where you're just like, oh my God, you know? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's enough pie for everybody and someone opened the door for me. And so I have to open the door for other people. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a true believer in that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, the, there's nothing we need more than kindness and empathy right now. Well, yeah, maybe. it's so yeah, it's easy to be mean and selfish. It's hard to be kind and patient and compassionate. That's way harder, you know. It's, fu- it's funny because uh Tom Brokaw spoke at my graduation back in 1991. <laughs> and um um he said it's easy to make a buck, but it's hard to make a difference. And my dad goes, "Hey, you you found the diff- the opposite to be true. Ims, you found it easy to make a difference and hard to make a buck." I'm like, "Okay, papa. All right. Okay." <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, you've definitely made a difference um, with everything you're doing right now and continue to make a difference. And everything that I, I've read and watched of yours has just been Thank really Thank you so inspiring. much for preparing. I'm so impressed. Oh, yeah. I, it was um, it was selfish for me, honestly. It was uh, I, I just was eating it up and it was helping me through a tough day as well. And uh, even though I haven't, as you called me out for, I haven't read the book yet, um, but I will most definitely. You'll laugh. You'll laugh. I think, I mean, a lot of people are reading right now, too, which is interesting because you can only like Netflix so much before you're just like, oh. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't do it either. It's a, it's a time thing, yeah. right? Like with our son at home all day and then doing the podcast, it's like there's only time to read articles and watch five minute YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but everyone's reading. And I've yeah. noticed... Um, a surge in people who are like, I've read your book. My book's been out for three years. Your, your, like, your book, by the way, sorry, we're, out, we're like, we have like five minutes before this recording cuts off because Anchor has a weird hour limit. Uh-huh. So I want to make sure to say like, your book is My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean, which is yeah. on Amazon and through your website. And Correct. Um, all your social is just your name, Amy Dresner, D-R-E-S-N-E-R. Yeah, I've got a website, Amy Dresner. Yeah, Facebook, Amy Dresner. Uh, Twitter, Amy Dresner, Instagram, Amy Dresner. It's just pretty, yeah. And if if you're, um, when your pilot goes out, uh, do you know what network it might be on? No, it's early days. It's it was it was optioned once before, and that fell through. Welcome to Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, 
this is this a, a new script and it's really funny and I'm really excited about it. So it's early days. So we'll see. I mean, I think the development part of Hollywood is trying to open up because you can send scripts without you know getting COVID. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited and uh, I don't know what the whole virtual thing will open up. I guess we'll see. But I have been able to be of service a lot to a lot of people who are struggling right now with addiction and that's been awesome and that's been a, definitely a blessing during this time and gotten me out of myself well to have you the know? the the talent and the drive that you have as well as uh, actually caring about helping others um i have no doubt that we're going to hear a lot more about you and i'm excited Aww. to see that uh excited to see that that what you're working on and um yeah, I can't wait. Thank you. That's really sweet. Well, you guys have been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. I wish I wish our podcast could be longer. This should be a two-parter. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'll come back. And, uh, and uh, thanks for reaching out. I liked your Facebook page, by the way. Oh, thank oh, you. We, ju- we just started it. <laughs> thank Good you. Good work. So- I'm impressed. I've been on a lot of podcasts. You guys are very, you guys are charming and you really did your research and you, would believe, you wouldn't believe how many people don't do their research. And it means a lot when people have done their research. Like, you're like, let me read you something you wrote. I'm like, oh, did I write that? That's pretty good. <laughs> like, and he read it and he sorted it out. Like, wow. Like, so thank you. Well, you're welcome anytime. If you yeah. wanted to join us as the third host, you could be here, <laughs> you could be here every night. Um, you guys are in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah, in Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, God, I, wish, I don't even know if I can get into Canada. <laughs> you, you cannot <laughs> I right now. Get my record expunged. But uh, yeah, I'll come quarantine with you and the kids. Awesome. Please save me. Save me. Yeah, we'd love that. We keep asking people to move in with us. Everyone said no. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> are you crazy? Have you met us? No, I will totally move in with you guys. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll set that up offline. <laughs> so much for having me thank Thank you you. amy we'll talk again soon okay have a good night Bye. bye